Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. Join me as we unravel artist Sue Webster's fearless journey, guided by her unyielding obsessions. From advertising posters and letter set books to crafting sculptures from hot rod car parts and following bands across the globe, Sue's extraordinary path is a testament to her unwavering passion. LSD opened doors to her creativity, instilling the confidence to forge her own unique route. She recounts being rejected from art school, being inspired by the YBAs and the hilarious moment when Charles Sarchi bought her work from her first ever show. She invites you to ignore advice, ditch your phone and shares the music she has on repeat in the studio right now. I came to you because this podcast is called Extraordinary Creatives. And it's a funny, it's a funny thing in that most of the creatives that I love and admire and respect would never describe themselves as extraordinary or having done anything other than just do, you know, what they love. But I think partly it's to talk to people like you who have kind of overcome incredible things and made incredible things happen in the world, maybe not necessarily come from privileged backgrounds, but have also found a route that suits them and found a route their own way, if you like. And so the people I'm speaking to are not just from the visual arts, but from, you know, there's poets and writers and comedians and in a much broader sense of like, what is it like to have a meaningful creative life? And I think there's the kind of the performative stuff that we all do, you know, when we're talking about our work and all of that. But I think one thing I really love and respect about how you've shown up throughout the years is that actually you're always authentically yourself wherever you go. And, you know, I know that is sometimes there's a, there's pros and cons and challenges that come with that, you know, when you live to what you believe in. And so that is your values and your as well as your creative work, I wanted to speak to you because I do find you um, honest and uh, clear in what you want to achieve, actually, and what you want to get out of life. And I think, you know, for some people who might look at you now after everything you've been through and achieved, people might assume that actually it's something like you come out of the womb knowing how to do this shit, you know, and <laughs> nobody, nobody knows. We're sort of making it up as we go along. But I, I wanted to ask you if you do us the honour of starting at that beginning, like what, what was the context that you grew up in? You know, where did, where did it all start for you, the creative journey? The creative journey. Well, I didn't, it didn't set out to be a creative journey. Um, I wasn't born into an artistic family, so I didn't, you know, you, you, I think um, I always, I always considered it to be a, being born with a burden, having this sort of creative part of you that you have to sort of exercise a demon, I guess you have to get some stuff out of your system. And, and it was never, it was never encouraged when I grew up. Um, and it was, it was just a thing that I did. I just kind of was always drawing, I suppose. and. And um, I, was, I just remember drawing a picture one day and I showed it to my dad and my dad didn't really applaud me for it. He almost, he almost kind of like rejected it as if it wasn't good enough. And I don't know what good enough was. 
I know that thing always sort of stuck in my mind. It's I, I, I didn't kind of make it. I didn't make art or I didn't make things in order to please other people, I suppose. And that, although showing my dad a picture, it was just a thing you do as a kid, you know. And, and he said, sort of going, oh, yeah, it's great. He actually deliberately said it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I would never do that to my child. I mean, how cruel. <laughs> I mean, you know, Spider comes home from nursery with all these like splodges, and I'm like, wow, what is it? You know, it's you, mummy. Or it's the cat. <laughs> and it's like, wow, you know, and which way round does it go? And you just want to be encouraging or or just it, make it fun. But I just remember doing this drawing, and my dad was just like, he, did, he, he had no comment and no encouragement. And, and, and um, yeah, and I, it's not always stuck with me. In fact, I just brought that up. I've not even thought about it since, but uh, going back. Yeah, <laughs> it, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't. A, it, there wasn't a hive of creativity at your house. It wasn't a carry on. Come on. <laughs> Not like nowadays, where I guess uh, there is such a. There's an art structure. There wasn't an art structure, and art was like not even a word that was even mentioned in the house. You know, because it just wasn't. It wasn't one of those things. We weren't taken to art galleries. Um, no, it was just no. It just wasn't one of those things. So I suppose it was. It was. I, it's not. It wasn't difficult because it was just life, wasn't it? I suppose growing up, and uh, you know, you got taken to football matches, and um, uh, I remember my dad taking us to a national front march in Leicester. Whoa! <laughs> because Whoa. those things. Not that we were. You know, I, I guess growing up in Leicester, for instance, uh, there, it was uh, one of those. Uh, uh, cities in in England that was a, a place where a lot of immigrants came to back in the you know nine, I guess uh, when I was a child like uh, so there was a huge Asian community and I guess par- my parents were you know I guess in a way racist because they were frightened it was like what's going on people coming in my dad was an electrician and so he used to say to me he used to rewire people's houses He'd be invited to go and do a job on, in a in a in a in a terraced house in Leicester, and the whole family would be watching how he did it. <laughs> the, the the Asian families would be watching him do it. Like my dad, had, you know, prided himself on having an apprenticeship um, and and uh, doing you know doing it the proper way, going to night school or whatever to learn to be an electrician. And um, you know, and then he got his certificates, set up his own business go around and uh, do jobs at people's in, in, in Leicester, in the city centre, Asian families' houses, and uh, they'd all be watching how we did it to copy him without the training, I guess. And so it's things like that. So, yeah. Can you remember a time when you started to realise that didn't sit with yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So I guess living with your, your parents and you were like, oh, yeah, well, I, I, I ate anybody that's foreign. And uh, it was a thing we grew up with, you know, because we were influenced by your parents, of course. And it wasn't until, I I think, later. Yeah, I was in my teens, I think. Then I just realised that there was a bigger world out there. And I started challenging my parents about it. And that didn't go down very well. (laughs) And and also uh, just challenging them about everything and, and, and about wanting to make art wanted to go to art school and it was like well what is this thing because you know it's not something that we've uh, it's not on the agenda you're not, to, you're not going to make any money out of it go and get a job kind of thing they thought I guess I was being deliberately awkward 
when I wasn't, I was just trying to be myself, I suppose. And I was being encouraged to be myself. So that was difficult. Yeah. So you're in Leicester, growing up as a teenager. What were those ignition moments for you? Where you you did you see something or hear something? Yeah, um, encouragement from a my art teacher really, because I was ready at sixteen to leave school and get a job, which is what my sister had done, and I guess that was that. There was no talk of uh, university or any or further education because it wasn't mentioned because my parents had never had a, a further education. My older sister hadn't, so it was kind of like leave school, get a job. That was what was that was the thing that was. That was the um, that was the option, <laughs> and so for me, I just thought, well, I'll get a job doing something. I was really mad on advertising. I used to collect advertising posters. I used to write off to companies. I used to love billboards, advertising stuff, and so I used to write off to companies for with a stamped addressed envelope and ask for a poster. That's quite so extraordinary. <laughs> I should find that poster collection because I was thinking about it the other day. I was when I was in Ireland um, this summer. And I was looking at the old-fashioned Guinness signs, and I just thought, my God, I've got some old Guinness posters somewhere because I sent off a, a poster for um, a lot of like drinks companies and things like that. So I must have a there's a box <laughs> of archival stuff. There must be some envelopes full of posters in there that are probably um, yeah quite rare, I'd say. So I, I just love advertising. So I thought I would go into something like graphics because it was a job. It was something where I could earn money from what I did, which is what I was kind of, that was all I knew. Yeah, that's so interesting because just behind you in your studio, um, there's a, a, a bag, a cloth bag with screen printed, I was a teenage banshee across it. And uh, you're obviously sat in a T-shirt that spells scum. Uh, across it and I think during your your career if we were if we were to fast forward um the the clarity of communication and communicating messages to a broader audience has been something that's been throughout your creative career yeah because when I think about the the stuff uh, the, the the light sculptures especially that I was I was making with Tim um when we when we left art school and started working together uh, we, we 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 made signs that spelt things love and hate and and there were very much emblems to be there were eye-catching images that you could um see from miles away i suppose that, that brought your attention like shop signs so i guess that um interest in advertising kind of never leave it's never left me i do like uh, typefaces i used to collect uh letter set books oh now you're talking <laughs> in fact I got, yeah it's there I've got my letter set book it's amazing there. yeah there's the stuff you scratched the yeah yeah because my dad had some you see and then he had the letter set I don't know why he did because maybe having his own business he was doing like control metrics typeface but in, you know, I used to copy the lettering, and um, and then if he had any letter set knocking about, I would do that the old letter set, which goes on to funk, nicely, <laughs> doesn't it? That sort of like that that cut and paste typeface stuff. If, and, and you, would, I would write things with, uh, you know, my dad's leftover letter set um, transfers. There was many letters missing, so you would like choose some letters off that that, that piece paper and like some letters off that so you'd get like and, and I just I know I, I, I would desperately try to make it work and make it fit and make it perfect but it never was because you know there was uh, half a 
box of that letter and half a box of the other. Yeah, lovely. And so as a teenager, you're growing up in Leicester, you discover um, your kind of creativity and burgeoning art teacher sees your talent how do they support you to experiment? Yeah, so I did, um, I guess I, I was, um, I kind of shone a bit in the art department, just drawings and whatever. And then I, I got encouraged to, you know, I was about to leave school actually at 16 and go and get a job. And then my art teacher said, well, why don't you stay on doing A-level, A-level art? And it was something that was never discussed in the house. And so I just thought, well, I will, I'll stay on. Um and do A-levels. And so therefore you could then um, uh, define your subjects. So I did art and design A-level. And I think I had to do English or something. Um, I had to do some kind of um, academic. <laughs> I think it was English. I can't know what else. Um, yes, but I definitely did art and design. And I, so design was designing um, kitchen. I think I designed a kitchen. Um but it was, I think it was in leopard skin or something ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't fare well in design, although I loved it. I loved design, but I didn't pass the, uh, I didn't get my ear level design, although I loved it. But that's only just someone's opinion, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I wasn't devastated when I didn't pass the uh, A level, but I did uh, pass the A level art. And then my teacher said, well, why don't you go and do, go to, go to art, um, go and do a degree? And I was like, What's a degree? <laughs> I had no idea what a degree was. And it wasn't, again, it was something that wasn't mentioned in the house. So it was, so to go to college, you know, was because there was other people in my class that were going to do a foundation course. And so I went to look at it and, um, yeah, and I got a place at, in fact, I got a place straight on the uh, degree without doing a foundation. But um, they said to me on the foundation, why don't you do a year at foundation anyway? just to discover what you want to do. I'd already got onto the, um, or, or whatever, I was already, you know, onto a degree if I wanted it, but I did a year foundation in Leicester. Again, I went in there thinking I'd do graphics, but I came out being a painter. <laughs> you know, because of course we, we didn't even, I didn't even know what fine art was. I just went in and did some drawing or whatever, and like I could like freely express myself. And so they was they they said, well, you can do this thing called fine art. And I was like, well, what's that? And um, why don't you look at these books? It was quite interesting when I was at foundation, where I noticed everybody, most people in the class disappeared, and they weren't in the studios. And I was like, well, where is everybody? And they're like in the library. And I was like, what are they in the library for? Because they're all looking through books for ideas. Oh, it interesting. Just, and I just thought, what are you doing that for? Because <laughs> you can just be in the studio and just be free. I was just baffled by people, where, where most of the people in the class spent the, their days in the, in the library just poring over art books, looking for inspiration. And I just couldn't see the point of that because what, why, when the inspiration is already inside you, surely? So, so yeah. what were you painting, Sue? I was a bit, I was quite into, when I just discovered um, fine art, I guess, the person that I most was influenced by at the time, I suppose, was Salvador Dali, surrealist. And I like the sort of long, elongated, kind of melty sort of, and I was at that time, I think I was probably about 17 when I first took LSD. And so for me, it all made sense. 
that kind of, you know, I went off to a festival. Um, no, did I go to a festival? It was the first time I took LSD. It was in a, it was, I was, I was also into music heavily. So I used to hang around a lot with a lot of bands in Leicester. It's very, very lively, the scene. And there was a band called the Gay Bikers on Acid. I know them well. Um, I went to see the them. Yeah, yeah. And so that we sort of just sort of hung around. And of course, the Gay Bikers on Acid meant that they were like on Acid a lot of the time. <laughs> and so I ended up dating one of them for a bit. And that was the first time I took LSD was around his house or his, they all lived in this flat in Leicester and whoa you know that was a massive kind of brain opener rather than an eye opener and I remember he took me to um uh the Victoria Park in Leicester and we just lay on the ground and we lay on a ley line he was like they're all into they're quite hippie although they were grungy they were sort of all into this sort of LSD thing and so um we lay on a ley line and I looked up at the sky and I saw the stars and they all joined together like a matrix and then I saw spaceships and it was just like it just blew my mind and um yeah so I was very much and I just thought Salvador Dali must have taken loads of drugs when I read about it he actually went he he ate strong cheese (laughs) before he went before he went to sleep and and but that's that was his excuse (laughs) well I still believe it it's Spanish and that strong cheese, oh, and then went brilliant. and then went to sleep, and then it was the it was the strong the strength of the cheese. All of those melting paintings. I love it. He must have t- he must have made that up. I'm sure. Told a journalist you know, back in the day. There, I never even questioned it. That's brilliant. I love that. So, but what did it inspire in you? What sort of things were you painting? Just kind of like, um, yeah, just kind of, yeah, uh, what was I painting? Just anything, just, you know, mad things that came out of my head, I suppose. Like uh, lots of, uh, I, I guess it's it's hard to try and capture a trip on in painting. You know, it's like uh, you can do it in film, can't you? Make it go, everything go in and out of focus and all spinning. But, uh, yeah, to try and capture that intensity of an LSD trip and I I, re- I remember when I kind of woke up well when I when I woke out of it you know you don't sort of start a hangover you don't wake up the next day and go it's fine sort of took a long time to wear off I did feel like I'd um I'd crossed over to the other side <laughs> whatever that meant I just realized I just thought well, that's it now there's no going back my brain has been um you know it's been open yeah, it's been expanded. It, it, you know, and they say open your eyes. It, I felt like my brain had opened up. And um, it was terrifying, but also, yeah, it's like the world is divided between those of, that have done acid and those that haven't. <laughs> it, whether in real, yeah, or metaphorically, I, I understand exactly. Yeah, yeah. I felt different. I felt everything changed at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah so so the, so then I was on foundation and then I I, I got a place uh, uh following that at uh, to go to Nottingham to study fine art yeah so this is still in the sort of midlands-ish area in the UK yes. yeah so and what at Nottingham what opened up for you there 
Well, Nottingham wasn't far from Leicester, so it wasn't that big a leap, I suppose. I used to go to Nottingham for, for gigs and whatever. So uh, Nottingham for me was a city that I loved and I knew it. And it wasn't far from home, but it was far enough for me to leave home. But I did look at, uh, I think I looked at Goldsmiths, weirdly. Um, and I don't know, I just had no desire to move to London. It just did not... To, to move south didn't uh, appeal to me at all. I wanted to go north. So the other, my other choice was Liverpool. Um, they were my three choices, I think. I don't even know whether Goldsmiths was a choice in the end. I think it was definitely Liverpool and it was definitely Nottingham. And I can't remember the third one. It may have been uh, Goldsmiths. But either way, I, I, you know, I really wanted to move to Nottingham. And that was that. So I moved to Nottingham. And I moved into a house full of boys. <laughs> A friend of mine lived in uh, Nottingham and he, 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 he got me a flat, uh, well, a room basically in a shared house. And every and, and there were seven boys in that house. <laughs> Interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting times, it's absolutely, yeah. And on my first day at Nottingham, uh, it was Trent Polytechnic, but it's now called Nottingham, Trent Nottingham University. Um, it was a poly, yeah, at the time. So the first day I turned up to enrol because you used to have to, I, th- I guess you, these days you do it all online. There was no computers in them days. So you have to literally turn up and check in, if you like, to the art school. And I was late because I'd been on, I'd been, I'd been in Europe with another uh, friend um, on um, to see Susie and the Banshees in Amsterdam. Taking more um, acid in those uh, little, um, those, what do they call them, those bright hash brownies? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Going on another trip. Um, and, and, and for some reason, I think I, I, I'd missed my train coming home to enrol. So I, I turned up a day late into, in the, uh, into the, uh, the head of department's office where I had to sign and fill out all forms or whatever. And there was, um, in the corridor waiting to be seen, being late, being a day late, there was a, there was a, another young lad loitering around with black curly hair. He was also a day late. And uh, it turned out to be Tim. <laughs> That's Tim Noble. My future husband, yes. We, we met in the corridor. We were both a day late enrolling at Nottingham uh, Art Poly. <laughs> and did you, you connected through that uh, finding a like-minded uh, spirit at the time? Um, did you start working so together? I was late. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it was the first point of contact. I had someone on my course to talk to. Yeah, um, yeah, and so I guess we went to the coffee bar afterwards, and sort of like you started started meeting other people. But I guess Tim was the first person I'd met, and that was that, and that kind of that was a relationship which uh, stayed with me for well for years. Yeah, years and years and years, years and years. Yeah. Can you remember what you first started making in Nottingham? In Nottingham, I was in the painting department. So I, I carried on painting. Um, but again, I'd done another acid trip that summer before starting art school. Again, I'd been at a, uh, it was a WOMAD festival. And I was with uh, uh, another boyfriend. And we'd gone to see Susie the Banshee's headline. Um, he was a, a Susie fan like me, who, who I'd met in Leicester. 
and um, we'd gone camping and we'd gone to see Susie. And then <laughs> I remember us buying a microdot, which was um, not LSD, which is a piece of paper that put me tongue, which I'd had previously, where I'd only took half and it blew my mind. Um, but I remember the, the, we were getting ready, you know, getting ready for the gig and all that. And uh, someone was selling microdots and they were like the size of a pinhead tiny tiny tiniest pill you've ever seen in your life and we bought one each it's all that tiny little thing that's <laughs> mom is it it's so small it's smaller than that little half piece of acid that i took previously and took it and oh my god then i went on a 14 hour trip and i wandered off and lost him so then i had this sort of panic set in and that's the worst thing um and I remember waiting at the front of stage for Susie and the Banshees to come on, you know, to play the intro music. And it was Jimi Hendrix called Cross Town, Cross Town Traffic. And I can't ever forget that because it kind of was playing. We were at the front waiting for it to come on. And then all of a sudden it slowed down like a record slowing down. And then it stopped and then it went backwards. And then it started t- talking to me and telling me, like, I was on an aeroplane. And, you know, when they, they do the... Um, the safety procedure of uh, put the life jacket on and tie the tapes around your waist. It was telling me to tie the tapes around my neck and pull tight. And I was like, oh, my God, I've got to get out of here. So I ran away from the front of stage, and it just seemed like a, an age for the band to come on. And uh, I just missed the whole gig. I just went running through the crowds, and then my pupils started dilating the size of my fish bowls. And I was just looking at everybody and everybody. I, I paranoia set in. It was awful. And I sat, I went off on this 14-hour bad trip. Oh, <laughs> I just couldn't awful. get out of it. <laughs> Trees were talking to me. Oh, gosh, oh. that sounds torturous. <laughs> the trees had apples on them. And the apples were every single apple on the tree was Michael Jackson. Oh. And in, in a different formation of his life, uh, just talking to me. And uh, at that point, I reached the Samaritan's tent and they were giving me chop, uh, hot coffee to try and sober up. Yeah. And I remember inside the tent, I could see every single molecule like I was going through a paisley curtain. And it was just like I was, I was swimming through mo- molecules. It was thick. And uh, yeah. So anyway, so um, I've been through that trip. That's a really some really strong visuals that have stayed with you all these years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't fly on an aeroplane for a long time after that. I was terrified of going on an aeroplane after that um, safety announcement. I'm, surpri- <laughs> I'm surprised you eat apples, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just couldn't fly for a long time because I was having flashbacks for years after that, um, terrified of flying. Um, and, uh, yeah, gosh, yeah, it was all sorts of stuff happened on that trip. I sank in quicksand and, uh, yeah, it was a bad one. I mean, if you were, if you were with somebody and, and they were going through it with you, but I'd lost the person I was with and so I paranoia set in and then I started panicking and then it only made matters worse and it took like 14 hours for it to go off. Yeah. So then I started, then I went, you know, then obviously a few weeks later or whatever, and then I went to art school. And then, um, yeah, so the, the kind of like the paintings, the trip. Actually, tell a lie, um, I wanted to move into sculpture from painting because um, I saw the world three-dimensionally after that trip. Oh, nice. So that's when I started then uh, making assemblages out of, out of junk, 
out of objects. Yes. And where were you squirreling your stuff from? Not from the art school, because when you go to art school, they have a uh, cupboard full of art materials, which everybody in the sculpture department was, uh, you know, here you go, here's some like uh, sheets of steel and here's some uh, lumps of clay. And uh, and so, you know, my, nearly every student in the sculpture department would go and get a lump of clay and start like, you know, building something or welding sheets of steel together like Richard Serra or like um, Alison Wilden or something like that. And I was like, nah, I'm going to go outside of the art school, get a shopping trolley. And then that's when the sort of, me and Tim started doing this. And then we started skip diving, going through, you know, pair of legs dangling over the skip and just bringing in shopping trolleys full of junk into the, into the art school studio and started, um, you know, making assemblages. <clears throat> and I remember I was obsessed by um, Americana. So I love customization. I would go to a lot of custom bike and car shows. I was really into cars, um, more than going to art galleries for, for influence. So I used to love going to like, uh, yeah, custom car shows and looking at hot rods and things with huge exhaust pipes and like flames down the side of them. And uh, something very graphic about those cars as well, isn't there? There's something. Yeah, you know, just... yeah. I still love a hot rod. I still stop in the street if a huge, big monster truck goes past, you know, and go, wow, I've got spiders. Well, you know, he's a, he's a boy. He likes things like that anyway. But, I mean, yeah, I just love the, you know, there's the, like I started reading um, Tom Wolfe's, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it was, it was, it was about acid and it was about, you know, metal flake spray paint <laughs> and customization and stuff like that so I was really into customizing things and so I, I got obsessed by customizing domestic objects and so I bring TVs and cookers and fridges and especially 1950s ones I could source them in scrap yards um, that have got sort of rounded edges and they look a bit American kind of thing and then I would be welding um huge chrome exhaust pipes onto the side of them and like fix it and then uh electrical skills came in because uh, when I was a teenager I used to work for my dad uh, I used to go on jobs with him and uh, learn how to uh, wire up uh, machines and things so I wasn't afraid of um, electricity and stuff like that so I could wire up lights and uh, and 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 put flashing light and buy like car lights and put them onto domestic appliances and make them flash. And Mate, God, you must have been really popular at art school. <laughs> <laughs> was everyone trying to get you to do their stuff for them? It's quite funny. Recently, someone like, had asked me to put a, to, to, to rewire a, uh, a, an, angle point, an old angle point lamp, and I was like perplexed that they didn't know how to do it because it was like a simple thing. <laughs> but I guess it was to me. Yeah. I used to wire up uh, cigarette vending machines. That was a job that my dad had, yeah. And did you have lots of 1950s kitchen stuff in your home? No. No. Where, do you th where did you first sort of start connecting with that kind of look and feel of things? Um, from um, travelling, probably. Um, I remember watching movies. I, was, I remember one of the first movies that made an, uh, an impression on me was um, Midnight Express. That Alan Parker film about the uh, the true story of the uh, the American tourist that smuggled heroin and then got thrown into the Turkish prison. I remember watching that film at the time, and then 
seeing the backdrop of Turkey, of Istanbul, where everyone drove around in like these chopped up Chevrolets and um, Cadillac cars. And it was because the there was an American um, uh, air bases, I guess, during the Second World War. They were they were based out there. And so when they the Americans left, they left all of their memorabilia behind. And so like um, I went on a trip to Turkey when I was at art school and uh, with the sole mission of going around scrapyards and bringing back loads of junk. Whoa. <laughs> how, did you, how did you get it back? I didn't take any luggage with me. And in them days, it was dead easy. Just put it in the aeroplane. Brought back, um, uh, you know, it, just parts of Chevrolets and stuff. I couldn't speak any Turkish, but you got by by drawing pictures. And then I'd uh, find scrapyards and, you know, you could dismantle cars and whatever and just bring back some uh, fins or amazing shaped backlights from cars. Um, yeah. So- when I've still got some of that stuff. Yeah. That takes quite some chutzpah to to take yourself off and start negotiating for like fenders and like wings and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Where growing up as you did and not having any sort of reference points, how did you find your confidence at art school? Where did that come from? Confidence at art school. To do what? to make stuff yeah to do to do it the way you wanted to do it how did I find my confidence I don't think I ever thought about that I just did it um how did I find my confidence what because I was afraid of what other people might think well no no you clearly weren't but it's often you know it's um to follow your own path and to do your yeah. own thing. I guess I'm a, maybe it's to do with being obsessed by things. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that if I, and I found it in Spider as well, well he obviously gets it from me, that you, I, I get obsessed by things. You know, I, I have great obsessions, hence Susie and the Banshees. I kind of like, you know, I will, I will home in on something and just, you know, try every every which way there is to try and achieve something um and won't give up until it's until I've satisfied that itch if you like yeah I would just get obsessed by something so maybe I just watched this film and then I saw these things these cars and I just thought and I love traveling you know always have done um you know, if I if I ever made any money, I would just spend it all on travelling, just travelling around the world. I've travelled around the world. Um, I've been to all seven continents. That includes Antarctica. Um, I just, you know, it's that. I, yeah, I love travelling and you don't know what you might find. So what, you're starting to find your kind of vernacular or your kind of language. So we've got kind of these references. It was taking LSD, you know, it was that thing that when I said to you, you know, it was the thing that it, it, it expanded, it opened my brain to a bigger picture that life was, you know, to the world being something that was greater than me and not to be afraid. And it made me, I had, maybe that's what gave me the confidence, I think. I, I, maybe I pin it down to that, doing acid trips. I think it does expand your mind. You know, I'm not, yeah. I yeah. think also that um, where you saw everything was connected, I think that's a very common thing. And uh, mm. I I think there is something in, 
bit like being in community with other things, not just people, but yeah, things in the world. Yeah. Um, and not be- caring because not caring because it's like, hey, we're only on this earth for a certain amount of time. Let's do as much as we can. Let's try and uh, reach our full potential. I'm always interested in pushing everything that I can to pushing myself to the edge of the potential of whatever it might be, you know, whether it's a house, whether it's a, I don't know what, it's just not stopping until I've got there because I see, yeah, the world is a, is a big, I see the bigger picture. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, you know, and it's kind of like I get frustrated with just the everydayness of life because it's so boring and people put so much importance on nothing and especially themselves a lot of the time, especially within this, the rules of the art world or the rules of life. And it's just like, I just, can, I, because I just can see beyond that. I just think, you know, it's like, what are you? Why are you? Why are you so self-important? It just, I just don't get it. But I'm, and I feel sorry for people. <laughs> <laughs> when you were um, starting to negotiate this kind of the DIY aesthetic with uh, with Tim, how did you find your your language of collaboration that early? stage like how oh, weirdly yeah I mean I started we both started art school as painters at Nottingham I had um, my mind I was I, Tim obviously did lots of drugs too um and so I just you know I, I was there and I was like Do you know what I'm going I'm going to move from painting to the sculpture department as soon as I can and uh, you know I went first and I got a massive space and I just like and it was my room and I had a door on it that I could lock and keep people out and it was fab I mean, I was very lucky. I had a massive space. And then Tim moved down to sculpture uh, not long afterwards, and there was no room. So he just had a curtain under, under the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, um, and uh, I was messing around, like I said, with electricity, with flashing lights, with chrome, with Americana, with welding stuff and learning learning all the skills. They teach you everything. You know, there was a technician there where you can have welding classes and you can learn how to do this this and this and so I learned how to weld how to you know all the stuff that you needed to do to connect things together I did all the learning um and whatever uh and then I and and then Tim was very he was very interested in taking things apart and seeing how they worked and so he was into kinetics he came from a different background from me, the, the complete opposite, where his parents were artists. And so he was nurtured to be an artist. Do you know what I mean? And so he was taken to the art shows. And so he was very much influenced by um, Jean Tingley. I think his mother had took him to see a Jean Tingley show at the Tate, you know, with all the crazy movements. And so he was trying to recreate his own versions of Jean Tingley with motors and things spinning and crazy kind of cheap student versions of of uh, of that and um and so I guess we were the only two people that were looking outside of the box at art school and so we we're very much drawn together on that um and then once we graduated there was somebody came along you know and said uh, oh I've got a studio a complex up in Bradford in Yorkshire which I'm opening up and I'm looking I can give you a free studio if you want to move up I had no idea where Bradford was. And I said, yeah, it's free. Let's go. 
I didn't want to be a, a, a an ex-student hanging around the art college, you know, which is what the others had done, like the school bullies. Well, we've all graduated, but we don't know what to do with ourselves. I just thought, God, I don't want to be one of them people. I just want to leave. So once we've done our degree, um, we I took the opportunity to leave town and move up to Bradford and get a free studio. Amazing. I, yeah. I, I went to art college in Bradford. And uh, and then had a studio there afterwards. And, oh, right. Okay. Uh, it was really, it was an incredibly cheap place to live, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it yeah. was. It was so cheap. Uh, and then can you imagine the shock of moving to London after that? Yeah, I can. <laughs> 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 but we moved up to Bradford and we got given a free studio and then we had to find, um, I mean, my God, you know, it's it was, it was tough living it. I mean, it was cheap. I loved it. And you also like, you know, you use cent- uh, Bradford as you sent, center to to then explore manchester and we had uh, we ended up having a studio in halifax we moved to halifax we lived in bradford but had a studio at dean clough in halifax after that which was you know wow what an amazing place what a great privilege to have you know most people haven't haven't experienced that part of england i mean i always thought i'd live in home first i loved home first did you that's so cute for people listening yeah it's it's really like a one day i'll end up living there very british chocolate boxy kind of yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah. I lived in Bradford, which was like the roughest place. I mean, I was obsessed by it because I, the first I, the first book I read there was Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son, which was the story of Peter Sutcliffe. <laughs> and realising that he'd committed one of these murders uh, on Ash Grove, which was the street behind where I lived on Claremont Terrace. I lived on Ash Grove. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it was a scary, odd place to be. and uh, But also there was so much because it wasn't like Leeds was a funkier city, wasn't it? And a bit more happening. But um, Bradford, they had this phrase when I was there called Bradford's bouncing back. And um, and I think there was a kind of a desire to, to gentrify, but we were still there. I think probably we were there maybe within similar time frame. But I think rent was like £12. A week, I think I can remember at the time, which is amazing. So you could have these incredible grand buildings, couldn't you, um, with enormous spaces. And then where you went to Dean Clough in Halifax, there was a um, a journey through the countryside. Yes, over, over, just... over, oh, it was over. What was it called, Queensbury? Yeah, Queensbury? the sort of look, you go up the top and then down again. Oh, it was just the most beautiful drive to 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 work, if you like, to the studio. Yeah. And at Dean Clough was a thriving centre where a lot of artists did amazing shows, didn't they? So really super famous artists at the time in this kind of amazing old Millie kind of warehousey vibe uh, complex, really. It was um, an old carpet mill, wasn't it? Victorian yeah. carpet mills. And uh, they had the stables. I mean, they had the Dean Clough uh, and still, sorry, not Dean Clough, the Henry Moore Foundation there. And... Uh, I always kind of was a. I thought that was a bit snooty. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Did you, did you meet any artists that were coming to show there or work there? I remember. The uh, no, I, I mean I went to see the shows. Janice Canellis, Alison Wilding, um, are the two that I remember. But we were like, I was not interested in uh, contemporary art. I was just interested in making you know chopping up cars and welding them together and uh, we were a bit like uh mad max in them days you know we would you know we'd 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 gone i'd gone from like uh domestic appliances to cars to chopping up cars and uh 
you know, and make, and we used to drive this Mini without, a, we took the, the body off the Mini and just, and it was a chassis on wheels. <laughs> and then uh, just used to drive that around. I so I'm laughing because I am um, because I know the place where Probably we were driving around. <laughs> also, just like uh, the, the, the size of a mini, that would have looked like one of those Kinder Egg toys, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> that you were driving around. Um, so, how long did you were you making? Because you had a lot of space to make big works there. Clearly, yeah. so well, yeah. in Deancliffe, we had a small space in Little Germany. Uh, but in Dean Clough, yeah, we had a massive stable yard, and but it was freezing cold. It has a cobbled floor, you know, and we used to have to um, mess around with the meter to try and uh, put the heating on full blast. <laughs> when, when you're wiring and electricity skills come in handy. <laughs> well, it's called survival, isn't yeah. it, really? You yeah. know, I just didn't see anything wrong with it because, you know, the world was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> Fair dues. <laughs> So from that point, where was the turning point where you started getting the bug, the art bug? Well, I mean, we were making art. We were just, it wasn't considered to be like, a, you know, I didn't even know there was a contemporary, there wasn't a contemporary thing going on, I suppose. I mean, the closest thing we had to it was the Henry Moore Foundation. We used to see these rather pompous sort of events going on uh, that we weren't a part of, although we'd see the shows. Um, we were just happy in our own shit if you like just like just surviving but um tim's older brother was an artist um and he'd been to the royal academy of arts so he was like a proper artist compared to us we were just like messing around and um he used to uh tell us about what was happening in london and i remember him once saying that uh, somebody had put a shark in a tank and we were like what <laughs> a shark in a tank and uh and i was incredible i remember us both being you know everyone was talking about it this must have been 92 and um you know and it was in this gallery in london and so we went down 200 miles down the motorway in our camper van because we had a, a 1979 westphalia camper van which the engine blew up on the journey down <laughs> <laughs> but um anyway so we went down and we went to the Saatchi gallery uh we found out where it was on boundary road in this cottage and walked into this enormous space which was painted white the floor was white the walls were white everything was white and it made your eyes go funny because you couldn't focus on it i remember that walking into that and then seeing these like you know walking into an empty space with one object in it one artwork in it and uh, coming face to face with the shark in formaldehyde. I'd never heard of Damien Hurst, um, but I saw, came to face with that. And that was the kind of the wake up call, if you like. It was the, the punch in the stomach that took my breath away. I remember looking at that piece and going, anything is possible. I mean, I always thought anything was possible, but then it, it was like within the, there was no parameters to art. Art could be anything, and the enormity of the idea, and the lengths that someone had gone to 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 to, to make that piece, you know, because I found out about the backstory and whatever that he had actually, it was beyond art. It was big, and it kind of like in a way, it probably, I was waiting for something like that to happen, because I knew that these things were possible, but was not being encouraged to do it, and couldn't find a, 
couldn't find an avenue, maybe. Um, didn't know, and that was a way in, I suppose. So it was uh, it was a kind of lifeline in many many senses. I think in that show was Sarah Lucas's two fried eggs and a kebab, possibly Mark Quinn's bloodhead. Looking at these things was just like fuck. What am I doing wasting my time up there? Stupidly, but well, not stupidly, but the time that Tim and I spent up in uh, Bradford and the uh, the area of Manchester and Liverpool, we were doing little shows of our own, with welded together junk scrap and whatever. Um, but it was that it was it was when there was the Manchester music scene happening, and uh, it was very much there was a focus on the north, and so we were under the impression that we would come and get discovered in the same way that these bands were being discovered. Um, you know, we just thought, well, this is going to happen. They're going to come up here. But it didn't happen. It was, it was obvious to us that it was, we had to go down to, down to London. And London had been something that I was never interested in going to be a part of. For me, I had nobody. I didn't know anyone in London. My family never had friends in London, so we wouldn't go to London. It was just a, a thing that was over there somewhere. And so, um, yeah, so then I just thought, well, if we're going to really take this art thing seriously, then we can't pretend anymore. We need to go and, like, you know, hit it head on, see what happens. So we decided to move to London. Did, how, did it feel scary? Yeah. Yeah. And where did you land? Where was the first place you landed? Well, my idea was uh, very cleverly, I suppose. I thought, well, I don't know. Tim had friends in London. I didn't know anybody. We went down and stayed with a couple of his friends. Um, but the idea, really, to do it was to apply to go to art school to do an MA. Because then I thought, at least you've got a studio for free. And a, stru <laughs> a structure of some kind. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, in them days, it was free to go to art school. Um, and so we both applied to go to, to do an MA. Um, I knew somebody that had done an MA, so I knew that this thing existed. <laughs> you could go and do another, you could go back to art college. So we both applied, and I applied to go to Chelsea, and Tim applied to go to the Royal College of Art. I didn't get a place. He did. We applied separately. We, we decided to, we, although we've been working together at this point, we, we didn't... Uh, it, I, I didn't think that it was the right thing to do because it wasn't, it didn't seem an acceptable thing to actually apply as a collaboration to go to art school. And we didn't, we didn't even know we were a collaboration. We didn't know we were just making art together to survive. Um, so we applied separately because damn the rules. <laughs> we made a separate body of work each. Um, yeah, and um, I went for an interview. I don't even know if I got an interview. I must have got an interview. And I think they said to me, you don't need to go to art school. They said, you don't need to come back to art school. And I took that as a devastating blow when, in fact, I should be grateful for them. Because yeah, that was a compliment. Back, you know, because not, I didn't see it as a compliment, but it, boy, did it make me try hard. Yeah. Because it was like, a, it was a, it was a, it was a rejection, I suppose. Um, and I just thought, but I really want a free studio and I need some help. And um, I didn't get a place, and Tim did get a place at the Royal College of Art doing sculpture. Um, and uh, and so I kind of wasn't, uh, I wasn't annoyed by that, really. I just thought, brilliant, you know, one of us has got in, that means we've got a, you know, foot in the door now. 
So Tim, uh, so we got a student flat, uh, which was kind of subsidised, which was great because it was a bloody lot. Of, it was a, <laughs> it was a, it was a massive uh, shock. The uh, all of a sudden everything was twice the price. I remember going Morrison's in Bradford for a loaf of bread was fifty p, and then coming to London, it was, it was a pound, and it was what the fuck? How are going to survive? And so we did survive. You know, we both. Um, I remember uh, we got uh, we got this the tiniest flat above Clapham South Tube Station, which was subsidised by the uh, the Royal College of Art, and uh, I just signed on the dole and got the benefit. And then Tim, as if Tim didn't exist, and uh, you know. So we kind of lived off, you know, I sorted out that bit to live. And then he went to college every day. And then I realised um, he was going to college and he, the tutors were only there three days a week. And so for four days, I went to college too. Brilliant. <laughs> and it pissed <laughs> off everybody. But I just thought, what am I supposed to do? You know, I haven't got a studio. So I just went in to college and made things and made things with Tim. And, you know, Saturday and Sunday, nobody was there. Um, and the yeah the two so we were there every day really um, seven days a week very, very few people were in at weekends some of the technicians went in and did their own work I befriended them and then learned how to do stuff um, so yeah again it was just a and it wasn't until two years later when Tim graduated at the uh, Royal Albert Hall and I turned up you know in my jeans without a platform and then everyone kept coming up to me going why are you not graduating? And they didn't realise that I wasn't actually a student. <laughs> just turned up there every day. <laughs> so brilliant. Do you know what I really love was that, firstly, it's that following that obsession, like I just, you know, but also that kind of I see no reason why not. You know, I see no, I'm just going to give it a bash to see what happens. <laughs> so there's something in that kind of resilience, but also determination, like, well, he yeah. had a, um, you know, in them days, uh, the sculpture school was in Battersea. So it's separate from the main Royal College. I mean, in, in Kensington Gore, it was this like multi-story art academy where there was something on every level. There was like printmaking, there was fashion. You could do what you want. So he had a pass, you know, that you tapped on the door that he never used because he never used a big building. It was always in the sculpture school. So I just thought, oh, I'll go up there and see what's going on. You know, and I just used to wander around and wander into departments and, uh, you know, befriended the people in printmaking and started printmaking stuff. Uh, I printed T-shirts in the fashion department. I got a part-time job in the shop selling art materials and then selling the T-shirts that I printed. Um, I even got invited onto the uh, printmaking uh, uh, trip to New York, although I wasn't even a student. <laughs> I just... Brilliant. I wanted, really, yeah. <laughs> so by this time, you know, like you're soaking up everybody else's creativity. You've got a sense of what drives you and what excites you. You're still making work with Tim. And did you have a sense then of where you wanted to put your work? Did you start dreaming of showing your work or getting a sense of where you wanted to publish in the public domain? Well, at that point, the kind of YBA thing was happening, um, which was, you know, after the shark in the tank, 92, then I think Tim, had, we moved to London, you know, literally at, this, at that time. And then this whole 
amazing. It was an incredible time to be in London because it was so alive with uh, uh, DIY shows and uh, people doing their own thing. And and then Jay Joplin, you know, came along and started putting on these incredible, extravagant um, art exhibitions without a gallery, just in like uh, rundown warehouses in uh, Canary Wharf or in some place where and you'd go on and you they'd pin invites. There'd be invitations sent to the art school. And so there'd be a, a notice board of what's going on. You know, you'd be there like going, yeah, that pulling that one off, that one off, that one off. And then travelling to the end of whatever, you know, in, in, nothing happened. There was nothing at Canary Wharf in them days. You know, there's nothing going on, you know, in uh, Butler's Wharf and all those places. And even in the East End, there's just nothing going on like there is now. So you would be travelling to the far reaches of London and you'd be, I used to say to people, it's like joining the army, see the world, you know, be an artist, see the world. It was, it was just incredible for getting him around. And then next beer would be sponsoring each event, so there'd be free booze. So you could live quite cheaply, um, but see great art. And was, and there was just incredible, um, ambitious projects happening. And, of course, you wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. Nobody knew you because you hadn't done anything. You know, they were the goldsmiths uh, generation were a few years ahead of us so they would already graduated done the free show put on shows themselves and they've been picked up by galleries and galleries were opening starting you know the, you know Joe Joplin didn't even have a gallery at the beginning you know it, uh, uh, that it was all unfolding and you wanted to desperately be part of it and you were showing up at these events and going well I want to I'm doing things but nobody was interested in you I did we didn't know anybody only your fellow art students um, that seem to be doing nothing really, uh, apart from waiting to graduate. And we were just out and about, you know, seeing what was going on in town, in London, going from one thing to the other and trying to blag your way into an event at the ICA or at the Tate. And it became a bit of a buzz to see if you could wangle your way in or walk in with someone, do you know what I mean? And it was just like, get in on the thing. It just became another obsession. <laughs> And then, it, it, you know, it became, it became quite apparent that, um, you know, nobody was interested unless you'd done something. So you had to do something, you know, you had to make something. You had to put on a show and then you had to invite people. So you had to contribute in order to be part of the scene. You couldn't just be a hanger on and, and then a career would magically happen out of nowhere. No, you had to make stuff and you had to, um, yeah, so you had to work at it, really. Yeah. Contribution is something that um, I talk to people a lot about and that kind of knowing how you want to add value, you know, and having uh, a sense that you want to be part of or participate in something. And so that was clearly really strong for you guys. And you followed your nose, you followed I your hunches. Yeah, I, I was impatient. I didn't want, it's like we were waiting to be discovered up in Bradford, but that didn't happen. So we came down to London to be part of well, at the time, there was no scene. It happened in before our very eyes. So we were very much around at the time that it was happening. And, uh, and it was it was just so exciting. Uh, people were just doing stuff and opening, like, the Tracy I'm in the Sarah Lucas shop, doing stuff. It was lawless. There were no rules, you know. And, I, I, you know, for me, that the generation above that, 
Tim's brother's generation, if you like, that was still like waiting to be sitting around in the garret, I suppose, waiting for Anthony Dauphin or, you know, Nicholas Logsdale or the Marlborough Gallery to come and like discover you. They were sitting patiently, whereas this new generation had no patience. And I was like that. And I just thought, well, this is, I'm with my people now. (laughs) You found your tribe. And who was it that gave you your first break? Um, who was it? Um, well, I mean, we, um, seeing how, um, it was done, if you like, which was to get a rundown. I mean, we just think what's happened going back to give us a break. Tim was at, when he was at, when he was at the Royal College, there was a mature student there who was also at sculpture school called Mick Kerr. And he, um, he said, oh, I'm friends with this, uh, this guy called Joshua Constant. He has a space in, um, in Shoreditch. Where's that? <laughs> this small gallery. And he's doing quite crazy things that are outside of the gallery, like he's doing a village fete for artists. You should come and meet him. He'd love what you're doing. So we did. We went down to Shoreditch and we met, uh, we went to visit the first Fate West and Death. Uh, so Joshua Constant put on the, uh, these things called the village, the Fate West and Death, which was on Vivington Street and Charlotte Road, where artists would, um, have a stall and make stuff. Damien Hurst and Angus Fairhurst dressed up as clowns and did the very first spin paintings. So for a pound, you could buy a piece of paper and they'd squirt, they'd put it on a motor that span round and uh, they'd squirt uh, coloured paint on it and it would make the, the, the very first spin painters and sign them. And it was just bonkers like that because of, you know, you never thought that, that it, it, anything would come of that and Damien Hurst has obviously had an incredible career from that. And uh, so there was all this and we were like, wow, this is fantastic. We got to know Joshua Constant we met him and then he invited us to take part in the next one. You know, there were all sorts of other artists there like Tracy Emin and uh, and it was in this 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 place called Shoreditch, which was full of empty warehouses. And I remember talking to some people going, and at this time I think Tim was had graduated and we were looking to we were being kicked out of our student accommodation. I was looking for somewhere to live. Um and I remember looking at a one bedroom flat in Battersea. Like and it was like a hundred pound a week, and I got talking to these people in Shoreditch, and there was like a lot of artists that were living in these warehouses and empty shops because they'd been on the back of a recession that had just happened in the nineties. They were sitting empty, and no one would uh, occupy them. And so the, the fate was on the Saturday, and on the Monday morning, went back to Shoreditch and started asking around estate agents if there was any available um, spaces, and we got shown a shop on Rivington Street, which was been sitting empty, three floors, a thousand square foot, hundred pound a week. The same as this uh, one bedroom flat in Battersea. And I just thought, it's a no brainer, we'll take it. You know, so we took the, uh, it was the old Sterling Ackroyd estate agent shop, but they couldn't even afford the rent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had three floors. Yeah. So that was a bit of, that was the turning point. Another turning point, if you like. Yeah. So we took on this, uh, we took on, we didn't know how we were going to afford it, but we, um, we took on the lease for three years. And I thought, well, it's shit or bust in three years. If we can't do this in three years, then we'll have to go back north, you know. So, but um, the rest is history. During that time, the, what would you say were the challenges for you personally? Money. Money. 
Yeah, always. Um, I always used to say to friends, you know, the, 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 the most arguments I used to have with Tim were always about money because we never had any. <laughs> and it was how best to, where to get it and how to spend it. You know what I mean? Because we wanted to make a lot and although we most of our materials were found, I guess, that was, was that to do with money? Probably, yeah. Because we could afford to, you know, we, we, all of our stuff was, was scrap and junk off the street. So it was a, it was a, a, it was a necessity, I guess. It was one of those. They say, yeah, mother is necessity is the mother, the mother of, of invention. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, that's possibly why we started working with uh, trash objects and making that, uh, making shadows from them because it costs nothing. Um, and how are we going to afford? you know, to pay for £100 a, a, a week rent on this thing, you know, and it was, and we took enormous risks, you know, we signed the lease not knowing how we have been able to afford it. But luckily we did, you know, and we threw it, we did our first ever show in the studio on Rivington Street. And I remember like people wouldn't even come to to to, 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 to Shoreditch in them days because it was like in the middle of nowhere, you know. Well, it, was, it was a bit of a shithole, wasn't it? It was a long way to come, yeah, from yeah. Uh, wherever, from yeah. West London where most people lived and so we were living in this building on Rivington Street we lived on the top floor and then we had uh, the, the ground floor studio and the middle floor was our office and uh, we put on a show in there and you know painted it all white and we made our first ever shadow work and uh, our first ever light sculptures we put one on each floor and um, we found a young uh, wannabe art dealer that we'd met at a few parties called Stuart Shave who wanted to set, open a gallery but didn't have a space and we said well we've got a space why don't you put on the show for us and so he kind of like uh, we kind of all promoted it ourselves by pulling in favours to print invitations and put stamps on envelopes and send them out to everybody that we'd ever met and put them out hand them out at parties and we did a show in our studio and it was really really good to turn, turn out got drinks sponsored because you, you know again you'd meet somebody that gave me a few bottles of gin for free. And uh, we did our first uh, show. And, um, yeah, one day a taxi pulled up and with the engine running, and it was Charles Sarchi with his, with his daughter, Phoebe, who must have been about three. <laughs> three or four. And came in and uh, he left the, the taxi running outside because it was like, you're never going to flag another taxi in Shoreditch to get back <laughs> to uh, Eaton Square or wherever he came from. And uh, Tim and I hid behind the wall and we drilled a hole in the wall and we saw him as he wandered up and down the stairs. We had toxic schizophrenia, which was a giant light sculpture in the shape of a love heart on the ground floor. We had uh, excessive sexual indulgence, which was a, another light sculpture that, depicted uh, flowing water like a fountain on the middle floor and on the top floor we had this thing that we didn't know quite what it was and it was like it was two portraits of Tim and I that um were made of like all the bits and bobs that you collect in your in your drawer that you never throw away like uh, badges and broken sunglasses and whatever it was stuff that we made portraits of each other out of the stuff that we carried around with us bits and bobs you know, you are what you eat, if you like, kind of thing. Um, so we glued them all together and they look ugly and abstract and they're on poles, but when you shone a light on them, they were sculpted in such a way that they made absolute identical silhouetted portraits of ourselves. 
we'd never seen anything like it and we were quite embarrassed by it and we didn't know whether it was even art but we thought last minute we'll we'll put it in we'll put it on show on the top floor with a projector on it so the projector was on a sensor so you walked into the room all you saw was this pile of rubbish if you like your worst nightmare of what art could be but when you went close to inspect it you triggered the uh the sensor and the projector came on and then it shone the on the sculpture which made the silhouette on the wall and remember uh hearing Charles Saatchi we never met him I didn't want to see him I didn't want to speak to him we just hid <laughs> <laughs> behind the walls but we could hear him he looked at, looked at the sculpture on the ground floor the, the the love heart up the steps up the stairs the second sculpture we we you know, he must have looked at that, studied that, and then he went up steps to the top floor, which was our bedroom, with the with the other. And then, then I could hear the footsteps moving around, and then the trigger went off, the, the sensor, and then I actually heard him gasp, <gasps> take a breath, as it as he as it you know revealed itself, and um, and then obviously like ran down the stairs and back into the taxi and called the number on the invitation. We picked the phone up, and it was, um, you know, it was this, it was a, an assistant, one of his assistants, who had uh, said, uh, "Yeah, Charles Sarchi wants to buy." Um, he bought two pieces. He bought the shadow work, the first ever shadow work, and the big sculpture on the box. Yeah. How much did he pay? See, I think it was eleven grand for both of them. Yeah. And then Sadie Charles came on another day and bought the one in the middle. Whoa! And was that your first? Those two first, your first sales? Yeah, amazing. And I, was like, I never knew that. I'd never seen money like that. And uh, we would, and uh, what we did with it, we we flew to Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> two you? weeks. <laughs> amazing. We booked a two week trip to Las Vegas so that we could look at more neon lights because, of course, the signage for the hotels. Back in, back in the day, we made up of like fairground lights and neon. And uh, we went on a two-week study trip up and down the strip in Las Vegas. Amazing. And how did you know how to price that work if you hadn't sold work before? Well, we, could, well, we, were, we, were, we were presenting the show to Stuart Shea. Stuart was working as an intern for a gallery in Cork Street at the time. And so I guess we just kind of like, yeah, we winged it. And it was very cheap, you know, but it's, I think it was 5,000 for the big love heart, 3,000 for the fountain and three for the shadow work. Yeah. That's amazing. It's actually in those, I mean, it is cheap for, for who you are and what you're doing now, but in that time, that that was a feral whack, really. So, must have, especially if you're on the doll. Yeah. Must have felt like Christmas. <laughs> Christmas? What? Yeah, amazing. Like everything. everything. <laughs> so looking from, from where you are now, looking back at these times and looking at everything that's come from that moment, you know, the, the risks you've taken, the extraordinary adventure you've been on, what surprises you the most in terms of what, what you pulled off? Nothing. I don't know what the answer is that. Am I surprised? No. <laughs> Because you set your intention. Is it because you... But there was no... The, the thing is, right, people say to me, you know, like, you must have had a plan. No, there was no plan. I didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was going to happen from one day to the next, you know. 
There was no plan. There was no art scene. There were no galleries like there is now. There was nothing. So if you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. Who said that? <laughs> 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 you ain't got nothing. You ain't got nothing to lose. Yeah. But you also had an obsession and uh, a sort of a, a curiosity that took you to these new places and new adventures. And you made amazing works outside. You've made incredible works that have taken loads of energy, technology, people to kind of to make happen. Maybe just to maybe come at it another way, you know, what do you feel most proud of if you were to think of your younger self, you know, having had this remarkable adventure? What yeah, you- what am I proud of? Not uh, Never giving up, never doubting myself. Yes. How did you learn to do that? Acid. <laughs> it comes I back don't to know. Acid. I can't put the answer. I, there is no answer. How did I learn to do that? I don't know. Amazing. I was made that way. Mm. <laughs> and from where you are today, what would you say have been the biggest challenges in your creative journey so far? Uh, what are the biggest challenges? Um, I guess having having reached a certain point of success with my collaboration with Tim and then losing that then having to kind of reinvent yourself to start all over again. Is it a challenge? You know, there's a lot of things happened, you know, further down the line, um, which I didn't foresee because of course there is no plan <laughs> and it's like, it's what life throws at you. The challenges that life throws at you and so um yeah there's been some challenges further down the line of having to I guess reinvent yourself having had a uh, a successful life and career and for that to be blown up I guess with dynamite and, uh, to have to sort of reinvent yourself all over again but you can also look at that in a different way and say it's exciting, you know. Sometimes you kind of think, well, I did all that. I am, what's next? Yeah, yeah. You don't really want to go backwards. You want to sort of keep moving forwards, I suppose. So I see it as a new challenge. Yeah. And what's your, although clearly, you know, you've developed incredible uh, skills at resilience and and enthusiasm for learning. So I'm curious, what what would you like to learn next? Um, what am I learning next? Well, I'm learning to be a mother. Yeah, that's pretty epic. <laughs> but so again, you... there's no rules. You see, this is what I have to keep telling myself. This isn't. There is no rules. You know, uh, the way that I will bring up my child will be very different from the way that I was brought up. Is that a bad thing? I don't know. You see, because I turned out to be me. <laughs> and if he's given lots of opportunities that I didn't have, is that a bad thing? I don't know. I'm, I'm not worried about it, but it's something that I think about. Yeah, because I had uh, I saw obstacles as uh, adventures, I suppose, and they didn't. Nothing stopped me. But he's born into this world, this world that I've created, I guess, for myself already with that advantage um but i'm sure that there will be other disadvantage you know there'll be obstacles for him yeah that we don't yet know about 
although we, you know, we can have hopes and dreams for our kids, you know, and uh, they can choose to take them on or ignore them, as you know. I wonder if you could offer some advice for yourself as a younger a younger kid. What would that be? Don't listen to other people. Do you think you did at some point? If I did, it never got me anywhere. I just always thought that I would just follow my own. I mean, I'm an existentialist. I guess I follow my own path. And I'm responsible for that path. <laughs> and how would you like to uh, support a younger generation of creatives in terms of uh, if you could offer any inspiration or words of advice? Don't listen to other people and throw away <laughs> Throw away your phone. Throw away your phone. I love we that. Did it. We, we did it without that, didn't we? We did. Without a computer. I mean, computers came in, what, 2001, I think, when I got my first computer. You know, I'd already been to art school and uh, had a life, you know, and had many shows by then. We had no computers. We had no phones. And is are you saying that because you think it would give somebody more space? I just think that, uh, I mean, I just think social media is quite, although I'm on social media, it took me a long time to get on it. I, did, I never did. I, I seem to have passed Facebook by gladly. Um, I do do Instagram um, because it's more visual. But I do find it quite annoying as well. Um, the way that people can become kind of social media sensations without leaving the house it doesn't frighten me but it kind of like it annoys me sometimes I think that people live their life through it what's good or bad and whether or not you've got as many followers as someone else is a sign of uh, genius or not and uh, and it was like um, the words of Virginia Woolf popularity was never a sign of genius yes (laughs) which I always kind of stick by to (laughs) <laughs> I love that. If people did want to find out a bit more about you, see, where would you signpost them to? Um, I have a website, um, suewebstudio.com. And my Instagram is myblackbaby. Yeah, brilliant. And last but not least, what is your current obsession? Do you know, it was Susie and the Banshees that I've been kind of making my new work about. But I think... I'm going to, I need to sort of move on from that a bit now. It will always be there, but I, yeah, it's gradually moving away from that into, what's my current obsession? I can't think off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's there somewhere. It will just come out, it will manifest itself. It's bubbling away. Yeah. Yeah. Cleaning. Yeah. Cleaning, did you say? Yeah, I like cleaning. Do you? Well, actually, do you know what? It's probably Spotify. I've just, um, I I resisted uh, 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 Spotify for years because I like like buying records and I like discovering stuff on my own. And then I just, I I have to cave in in the end. (laughs) And someone said to me, oh, my new album is on uh, Spotify. And I was like, I don't get Spotify. I'll send you it through the post on vinyl. And I just thought, well, Okay, I, it's not as accessible to listen to when I'm driving or when I'm working. So I, I, I did the free trial for a month 
and I was on, and, and I got I got a hook within about thirty seconds. Is that what I'm There's all that stuff out there that I didn't know about, and it's, there it is. So, <laughs> what would you recommend we listen to? Really, just uh, sometimes I, I I didn't like when it chose music for me. So I kind of like, well, I'll tell you what I've just discovered recently. Um, and that wasn't actually on Spotify. It's from listening to the radio. Um, but uh, Budgie from Susie and the Banshees, the drummer, who used to be married to Susie, um, I, I, he actually has his own podcast. <laughs> which ah, I, I didn't know that. I'm going to check that out. With Lol Tolhurst, the drummer from The Cure. Oh, wow. It's called Curious Creatures. So I listen to their podcasts. It's on Spotify. But I was listening to their podcasts and um, they've actually made it, they're making an album together. Wow. And it's Amazing. the first track I heard by accident was on uh, Round Table. Do you remember yeah. Round Table? Yeah. Still there. On, uh, I listened to uh, Six Music and they have the Round Table with Steve Lamac. And I, I forget what it is, Friday night. And this record stopped me in my tracks. I was like, what's that? And it was them, their new album, their new record. They've got an album coming out. I'm going to go and check that out. It's called uh, Los Angeles, the single. You can, you can listen to it on Spotify. And it's got, um, what's he called? Jackknife singing on it. The guy from, I think it's LCD Sound System. It's fucking amazing, actually. I'm looking forward to the album. And seeing them live. So, uh, yeah, when I find a new song, I like to play it on repeat. Always have done. So maybe that is the new obsession, is that track. Brilliant. Los Angeles gonna take that baton and uh, have a listen to it thank you so much sue it's such a pleasure and a privilege as always to chat to you so thanks for being, taking you. us thank on you. that journey Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. Mm-hmm.